Welcome to the podcast, Yarning Up About STEM. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands in which this podcast was recorded and the lands of where listeners are tuning in from. My name is Ren Perkins. I'm a Kondamooka man and Indigenous Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Queensland. This podcast is part of a project called Big Mob STEM It Up, which informs Australia's Women in STEM Ambassador and the Pathway to Diversity in STEM Review. Listen to mob who are trailblazing in diverse STEM fields. I'd like to start off by acknowledging that we're on Cubby uh, Cubby Country uh, today and I pay my respects to the traditional owners of this country and I acknowledge their elders, past and present, and um, also just acknowledge the country wherever you're listening into from today. I'm here with Chris Rallar-Baker. Chris, can you share, please share with us who you are, who is your mob, and where you're from? Yeah, thanks very much for having me on. I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of where we are today on Gubby Gubby Country, up in uh, the magnificent Noosa. My name is Chris Rallar-Baker, and on my mother's side, I'm Yagara, so Brisbane Basin, and Warrangal, which is up around uh, North Queensland, Tully area, rainforest people. And on my father's side, I'm Radjuri from around the Mudgee area. What is your current role and where do you work? Currently, Australia's first and only Indigenous ophthalmologist. I primarily work in my private rooms up in Noosa and I have a second set of consult rooms in Nambour, just south of where we are now, but still on the Sunshine Coast on Gubby Gubby Country. Are you in an identified role? The short answer is no. I own the business that I that I run and work in. In that respect, I you know I'm I'm a fully independent business owner, and and so no, it's it's not an identified role, but it is a fully owned and independent Indigenous business. So how does your role draw on STEM skills? I mean, medicine itself is is STEM one hundred and one really, yeah. and. Uh, you know, it sort of it really harps back to, to medical school and going through the university system, completing a medical degree. But but yeah, it is medicine is in the midst of STEM, so I think it's sort of <laughs> a self fulfilling answer, really. <laughs> yeah, totally agree. So, how do you see STEM used in your family and community? I guess in terms of the framing of the question is is around STEM specifically for me. It's it's not so much a question of STEM. It's it's, it's more a question of uh, my role in the medical field, which is derived from from STEM, and it's important for my family first and foremost because it's it's of course role modelling and yep. it's the ability to create uh, financial and social independence and not have to rely on, on on governments one way or the other. As I said, it's a fully independent and fully indigenous-owned business, so. That's the impact on my family. The impact as I was, uh, or in fact I'd finished medical school and was entering my junior years um, as a medical officer. The impact was two of my brothers then went on to go and do dentistry. So that's on the family side of things. And I think on the community side, it's important to have leadership in all areas of STEM. And in my neck of the woods, as I said, I'm the first Indigenous ophthalmologist and uh, I now see others looking at ophthalmology as a, as a choice of career that would suit them. And in the last couple of years, we've recruited uh, two Aboriginal and one Torres Strait Islander 
ophthalmology registrars, so trainees. So wow. that's the wider impact is that we get to recruit others and address uh, critical workforce issues. So Chris, how was your education experience in pre- preparing you for your STEM career? Similarly to a lot of successful Indigenous people, the career path through school wasn't always the most supportive and I, you know, I always refused to be a victim, but I was lucky enough to uh, have parents who believed in the importance of education and I attended a private or boys school in Brisbane, so that was a, an enormous leg up, but at the local school level it really wasn't recognised that having literally the handful of Indigenous kids going through was an important thing, number one, and number two, to get them through to the end of year 12 with any semblance of success. Uh, But I was fortunate enough to have parents who understood the importance of education and then took that opportunity and didn't really listen to anybody who would say otherwise. So what were the highlights of your STEM education? The major highlight was the ability to finish year 12 and go straight into medical school. And that was quite a while ago now. So I finished year 12 in 1996 when very, very few uh, Indigenous kids finished year 12 to begin with. And then less than 1% of that cohort who finished actually graduated from a private education. So I was one of very, very, very few kids uh, in in that fortunate position. That set me up then to enter medical school directly. So I went straight into medical school as an undergraduate at the age of 18, directly from year 12, and uh, I ended up at the University of Newcastle, who at that time had graduated all but one, I think it was all but one of the country's Indigenous doctors, and we had less than 10 at that point, and they had the runs on the board, so it was an obvious choice. So that was, that was, that was the, the biggest impact it had, was that it allowed me to transition directly into medicine and pursue the career that I wanted to follow. So you had a positive experience at Newcastle? I had a very positive experience at the University of Newcastle, yeah. Did your formal STEM education clash in any way with your culture or your beliefs? Well, at school I was fortunate because I would go to school during the day but then go home to my Aboriginal family. So so that buffered whatever occurred in the mainstream schooling system. Yep. And then, as I mentioned, I had a very fortunate experience at the University of Newcastle because they had runs on the board in getting Indigenous students through and it was an incredibly supportive program at the medical school at Newcastle. And in fact, we had our own little support office where uh, all of the Indigenous medical students used to head to after tutorials or lectures, and, and we had wonderful staff down there who would support us. Professor Gail Garvey is in the university system still, and, and then uh, Denise Emerson, she was one of the support people. In fact, I was only on the phone literally with her yesterday. We, we still remain very, very good friends. So that system was designed to to break some of what can be overwhelming um, mainstream institutional hierarchies. And we were very lucky, and that's why they were so successful in getting people through. Uh, You mentioned your parents before, Chris. Who and what inspired you the most in your career journey? It's a question I'm asked a lot, and I've thought on it a lot. No one individual inspired me. I mean, some people will mention one person or another, for me, it was more the story of survival and the, and the story around taking the opportunities made to each generation before me and, and building on that to make the next generation's story a better one. 
the story that was always in my family was the story around my Warrungal great-grandmother who was, who was forcibly brought down from Bowen and then processed through uh, Maiora Mission on Stratty and, and then ended up marrying another Aboriginal, well, marrying an Aboriginal man who wasn't under the Act. And, and it was her story of survival and then her ability to, to have her children and not have any of them taken away, thank the Lord. And then, so, you know, then my nana successfully having her kids and then, of course, my mother being successful. So it was more a story of, of looking at those who came before me and the successes that they built on to make it better for the next generation. So it's not one person, but I think if I, if I did have to, to name someone, it, it, it would have to be the story of my great-grandmother. Although I never met her, she passed when my nana was only 12, uh, but it was always that story and, and that, that family, uh, that oral history of where she had come from and, and how we'd been able to sort of pick ourselves up from the, the nasty mission days. So she went by Lena Nora or Elena Nora. You know, for a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, especially Aboriginal people, you know, having those connections to reserves and missions in and around Queensland and, and throughout Australia, you know, I think that resilience has played a part in where we are now, like people like yourself who are successful and not just them, but, but in other areas as well. Well, and you're absolutely right. There are those connections. In, in fact, even the last couple of years, we were able to track down who my great-grandmother's mother was, which we never thought we'd be able to, and her wow. name was Mary Nora. And she, after Great Nana was taken, Mary was sent across to Yarrabah, and I was over in Yarry with, with some very good friends only two years ago around Christmas time. And uh, even that recently, we didn't realise that my great-great-grandmother had been sent there. So... It is incredible the connections that we have with all of these places and these storylines and families along the way. You know, it doesn't matter how far you go in STEM or politics or whatever you want to do in life, fundamentally we're all still from the same place and, and I think that that's a, a wonderful source of humility for us. We've had this traumatic experience but from it we've had these areas of strength, mm. as you said, these connections. So, What barriers did you face as you pursued STEM? My pathway through through medical school, as all medical students will find, was was challenging. A pathway that was supported by the university, of, as I mentioned earlier. The real difficulty actually came once I'd entered the, the workforce because I was, I think we only had around 70 graduates in medicine by the time I finished. So we were still very much a new concept. And I came back up to Brisbane from Newcastle to do my, uh, or I did internship at the Gold Coast, so I was only the only Aboriginal doctor in the whole hospital, in fact, who had ever been at the whole hospital. And then I was a junior house officer at the Princess Alexandra, and in retrospect, I was probably the first and only Aboriginal doctor they had ever had as well. I don't really know of any others. There may have been one other, but it was, you know, you said you're an Aboriginal doctor and people look at you like, what are you, you know? The idea of having an, an Indigenous doctor was not, anywhere in the mainstream was met with quimsical fascination to put it politely so there weren't any structures in that mainstream health system in the state health systems to support you it was just all right get in there you're the same as everybody else here's your roster yep. um, we don't care if you ain't got sorry business we don't care if it's mm-hmm. NAIDOC week you just no you can't have that leave yes you will get on with the job um, we don't care if you leave that was very very challenging and in fact I by no means had a straightforward pathway into ophthalmology I did my internship and junior house officer year and then was burnt out. I left medicine and vowed never to work as a clinical doctor ever again 
and uh, I went to work, in fact, as a senior health worker was, was my job title, down in Logan. And that was where I regained my strength because I was working with other Murrays, with community, and I was down there for 18 months and they were, by that time, the most enjoyable 18 months I'd ever had. I was on a health worker wage and, and I didn't have any of the gravitas of being a doctor, but it was just wonderful. And I owe a lot to my team down there because they gave me back me. You know, they gave me my strength back and they yeah. reminded me of why I'd done, done medicine. So then I went on to work on an e-health program and I worked with a wonderful ENT surgeon. He said, Chris, you're talented, you need to go back into medicine. And that was sort of where it happened. He created a lot of opportunities for me into ophthalmology and here I am. The challenges really came after finishing medical school. I understand it has changed quite a bit now because it's, it's not such a new concept to have Indigenous doctors and we have quite a few hundred of them now. Um, who have graduated, but but in those days it was relatively early days in that space, and and that was difficult. Not to discount that um, that it is still difficult for our, our junior doctors. It definitely is very very difficult, and also then of course college training. I was the first that the Royal Australian New Zealand College have ever had ever had, and that was a very difficult process, particularly towards the end of my training, which is you know it's 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 uh, on the public record that that there were challenges thrown up that should never have been thrown up but I've worked very closely with the college and they've been fantastic. They've engaged and they've recognised where they fell short. And like I said earlier, now we have um, three trainees on the program and they're running cultural safety programs and, and have just improved the whole environment. Silver lining to a, a, a very difficult pathway. This kind of alludes to the next question. How could have you been supported better through some of those challenges? Oh, it would have been wonderful, particularly in my final year, before the college to understand not only what cultural safety is but also understand as they now do and I give them credit for that but the importance of having Indigenous doctors and and diversity and the importance of holding certain fellows to account who were willing to make up stories that were simply untrue to hinder my career progression. I can't put it much more bluntly than that. I've had that difficult conversation with the college and they are absolutely fantastic now and, and, and in fact surveying the scene of the colleges I'm of the opinion that they are one of the leaders if not the leader in supporting Indigenous trainees and and genuinely committed to getting population parity of Indigenous ophthalmologists which sits at about 40 so we're we're one down we've got another three (laughs) in the system I reckon 10% is pretty quick in you know not so many years and yeah and and they're, they're a great crew they took the criticism on board and we worked together and, and, and they are, yeah, doing a great job now. How would you describe your recruitment into your current STEM career? In terms of being a private ophthalmologist and owning my own business, obviously I recruited myself there. Um, <laughs> and then in terms of getting onto the college training program, that was due to a lot of hard work on my part and taking on board the opportunities that were made to me but fundamentally those opportunities were made available to me because of very good non-Indigenous consultants who, who understood and saw the importance of getting Indigenous doctors into, in, into training pathways, into the college training pathways. And at that time, particularly non-GP training pathways, the College of GPs have been very good over the years in recu- recruiting, retaining and then graduating Indigenous GPs. But it's a reasonably new thing for non-GP fellows to be finishing. So like I said, you know, I was the first ophthalmologist, but only last year, I think it was, 
at the Indigenous Doctors Conference, we had our, our first dermatologist cross the stage, for instance. So we now have three Indigenous dermatologists. Uh, we have re very recently had our first Indigenous pathologist. We're about to have our first Indigenous uh, sports uh, physician. So we, we're making a lot of ground very, very quickly in the non-GP space. And my opportunities were created through very supportive people in the very, very early days of trying to get Indigenous doctors into that non-GP space. You spoke about some highlights in your STEM education. What have been some of your highlights in your STEM career? Well, getting onto the training program was, was an enormous highlight, not only because it's, it's an incredibly competitive training program to get onto, also as, as you know, the first Indigenous person on the program, that, that was a, an enormous highlight. And then the next highlight was, was getting out the other end. Um, you know, it, it took longer than what it, it takes most people, but mm. uh, that, was, that was the sweetest of victories particularly given what I said earlier with, uh, with, with some characters wishing otherwise. So, yeah, they failed, I won, yeah, and here I am. We spoke about some of these in your education, but how have role models influenced your career in STEM? Again, very fortunate in having the education I had at school, as well as having a family who, although we all weren't educated at a high level, there was always an understanding of the importance of education and the ability for education to change lives, not only our own, but those around us, and particularly family and community. Over the years, I think there's an increasing realisation of that amongst our mob, that, that the way out of, of poverty and, and the way off welfare is through education. There has been, and I think remains, scepticism of the mainstream health system that you know if you go into the mainstream health system you'll sort of be lost or you lose your connections I would I would argue no that's not true you know I still have strong connections with community and with my family yes but more than that I've been able to create my own independent business and an indigenous business and so I've taken that that migloo you know non-indigenous way of doing things and then molded it into my own way and created my own indigenous way of being and then had the ability to, to you know support others around me and and have a good life and have that independence of thought and opinion and yeah it's really difficult getting there but but i think the fear that people are going to lose themselves in the mainstream system is is not actually founded or or laid out in evidence i'm sure my mum wouldn't mind me saying this but she had a similar experience she finished school at year 10 in year 10 and then went off to work and then later on did her year 12. And then when I was in high school, actually, she decided she wanted to, to attain a bachelor's degree. My, my dad had the good fortune of going to the University of Sydney straight after school back in the 60s, so he won a scholarship. So I grew up with a father with a degree. Yes. Um, but then mum also wanted a degree and so she did it, but her own mother uh, was dubious of... of what that would entail and her own mother was worried that that would somehow change her or morph her into a migloo. It didn't. So I was lucky that that ground had been laid and that mould had been broken or that that suspicion had been broken mm. that yeah you can go away and you can go and train in a big white institution but you're not going to come back white. You're still actually going to be black and it's all okay. Still the same person. Still the same person. Still the same connections you know. 
And what did your mum study at uni? She did a Bachelor of Applied Science, yeah, uh, through Curtin over at WA. So I remember she'd fly over four times a year. Wow. Yeah, she really enjoyed it. Oh, good. Yeah. How have Indigenous initiatives, either in education or your career development in STEM, influenced your career? So Indigenous initiatives... Uh, Some we've had mentioned, like ITAS tutoring um, at university, have they? So again, at local level, the University of Newcastle, the faculty supported the medical support unit for its Indigenous students, and that was, it was a very small space, but it was a space for us, and it supported that unit with the wages of a director and, and two support staff in there, as well as the Indigenous tuition scheme. You know, I did lean on getting through medical school. So that would be the main two areas. I mean, ab-study is ab-study, uh, helps what you're going through uni. The other thing I had support me going through was, and I don't know if they still exist, but it was, it was a federal government Indigenous cadetship. I was put on in my first year as, as an employee of the federal government, and for the year I'd be on study leave, and, and then over the Christmas holidays I'd be required to work in one of the government offices. Um, my first year was down at Therapeutic Goods Administration in Canberra, and then I ended up at the Office of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health, uh, OATSIS, in the Brisbane office. And that's what I did for my, uh, my Christmas holidays with medical school. So that was also supported because it, that provided me with a wage during the year. And then I was able to accrue leave and, and sick leave and, and learn the basics of how being an employee of government works, which meant when I became an intern, I, I carried through all of those credits, but also understood leave and super and all that. Those supports are very, very important to help get people through. That program, was that while you were still studying? Yeah, so we had a cohort down there. We had some law students and I was the only med student. Yeah, it was a good little crew. There weren't many of us. At the moment, there's a program called Career Trackers, Mm -hmm. uh, which works very similar to a cadetship where Mm -hmm. um, undergraduate Indigenous people are employed throughout the year. Mm -hmm. Getting experience, all those things you said, Chris, Mm -hmm. and... uh, well, I know it's successful. My two eldest daughters both did it, mm. and um, it's, it's an excellent program. So, mm. but I don't know about that federal program if that's still going. I don't know. I mean, this is what oh God, nineteen ninety-seven. That's a uh, you know twenty-something years ago now. A few changes of government. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, in the goal of increasing Indigenous peoples' participation in all areas of STEM, what are some recommendations you have to achieve that goal? My advice to institutions is, firstly, understand it's not just about getting people in, it's about getting people out the other side, uh, particularly in, in, that, in the educational context. So it's, it's no good recruiting a bunch of Indigenous students into degrees if you're not going to graduate them. That has to be the fundamental realisation, no matter what, what area it's in. And then as we've touched on having support systems, you can't just put people in there and expect them to succeed. Uh, as you and I both know, as Indigenous peoples, we, we bring extra responsibilities, not to come from a deficit perspective, but extra, extra burdens that non-Indigenous people more often than not don't. I mean, some do, but you have to support and you have to, you have to tailor and understand for those difficulties if you want to get people out the other side. And as I said, for me, it was the support unit within the medical schools. It was having staff there to support us. Nowadays, a lot of the unis will have their Indigenous support units. So they're they're critical and you've got to fund them properly and you have to have the right staff in there. 
you have, have to have people who are dedicated. And then at the other end, then you know, you graduate people in, in their degree, but at the other end, in, in the employment sector, you have to have culturally, culturally responsive and culturally safe environments. As I described earlier, not what I had. You know, I hit a mainstream system that I hadn't heard of a black doctor <laughs> and didn't understand what was required to have that person succeed. And I dropped out. I went, I'm not having any more. See you later. I don't want to be a doctor. Bye-bye. So it's all the way through. You know, you were mentioning the success of those cultural safety programs and how they support our mob. Mm. So we need more of it. We do. And, and look, things are improving. I mean, when I was down at Logan, we used to, it was the old cultural awareness days. It was usually one of my staff and I would have to get up in, in front of about 100 people who had heard that Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people exist. Or some of them were lucky if they knew what Torres Strait Islander people were actually. They just thought it was Aboriginal people in this country, literally. Yeah. I just think they think, dear Lord. <laughs> and then we're trying to teach them how not to be racist. And so it, there's been a big improvement over that time. And, well, that's only just over 15 years. Not that I've done it for a little while, but last time I did it, I was walking into a, a much less hostile environment. And, you know, we've, we've become more sophisticated and, and had people self-reflect with cultural cultural safety and I think the last five ten years has been a palpable change particularly the last five years it's like the pennies dropped or we've just finally got to a, a threshold where there's enough people will go oh yeah okay I've heard of this this is important I understand this and it's important for all of us so we better engage I hope that's a reflection of reality and not just me as I become more senior in my career and people smile at me more <laughs> we're starting to get a critical mass of young people coming through school mm. who are more aware of our history and their shared history, mm. knowing the truths. Mm. So I think that's starting to come through society in general. So people are more understanding, uh, more knowledgeable, mm. um, and just more aware of the makeup of this country. As an Indigenous person in STEM, what advice would you offer to other Indigenous people interested in STEM? I think if you're interested in STEM, you should engage with it. Uh, particularly if, it, if it's if it's a genuine interest and, and you want to learn more about it and everything else will follow jobs will follow opportunities will follow I would embrace it willingly and and I, I wouldn't be scared of of anything really if you want to do it go and do it and it'll all pay off wonderful advice Chris thank you very much for your time and sharing your stories um, with us and um, all the best for your practice I look forward to yeah, you know, seeing continuous success. Yeah, thanks very much. Thanks for the opportunity, and it's been great to chat.